Okay, so welcome to everybody. There's always a sense, uh, I always feel like not only saying Bokertov, but Chag Sameach. It always feels like a festive atmosphere here. You always feel like you want to make a Shechayanu, and then they put us in the nine days, you know? Uh, Seems to be some sort of uh, contradiction in terms between this uh, wonderful festival of Tanakh and this somber period, but let's, uh, the, the, the Nabiim say that the uh, days of, uh, of sadness and mourning should become Liyamei Simcha. Um, and uh, that is our prayer, and maybe through Limut Torah, we are actually being able to fulfill a little inkling of what that is meant to be. Uh, today we're going to talk about the Aseret Hadibrot, sometimes called the Ten Commandments, but maybe better put as the Ten Utterances or the Ten Statements. And it's really probably one of the Tanakh's most uh, famous texts, most central texts. Um, in fact, uh, so many different sections of the Torah are modeled on the Aseret Hadibrot. And of course, these are the words which HaKadosh Baruch Hu chose to uh, speak in those wonderful moments of revelation on Har Sinai. And what we're going to try and do today is uh, a text which we're so familiar with, but we're going to try and um, see how unfamiliar it really is. And uh, we're going to analyze its structure, and through its structure, some of the meaning behind the text that we call the Aseret HaDibot. And I'm going to begin, I'm going to ask you to turn in your Tanakh, I uh, hope people have Tanakhim, you're going to need them, uh, to the Aseret HaDibot in uh, Sefer Shemot. We're looking at Shemot Perekhaf. Um... And that's going to be our main text. But I'd like to begin by asking a very simple question. And that is, how do we know that there are Aseret Hadibros? How do we know that there are ten? And by the way, there are some things which we all think we know are ten, and they're never mentioned in the Torah. Uh, for example, the ten plagues. Nowhere does it say in the Torah that there are actually ten. In fact, there are many other shitot who think there weren't exactly ten, or there were more than ten. Um... How do we know there are ten, and what exactly are the ten? So if you look at the first source in your uh, source sheet, you will see how we actually know that there are ten. The Torah tells us very explicitly that there are ten. Vayit shamim Hashem, this is to do with the second Luchot. Vayit shamim Hashem, arbaim yom barbaim laila lechem lo achal omayin lo shatah. Vayichtov ala Luchot, et divrei abrit, he wrote on the tablets, on the Luchot, the words of the covenant, Aseret Hadvarim. As we're going to see, there are definitely Aseret Hadvarim. And these Aseret Hadvarim are written on two Luchot. We'll come back to the two Luchot in a minute. Um, you can see it in source number two as well. Um, he told you the covenant which he commands you The Torah is very explicit that there are aseret hadvarim. I don't know exactly how we created the grammatical form aseret hadibrot. We won't get into that, but really, the Torah's phrase is Aseret Hadvarim. And, uh, but there are certainly ten. So what are the ten? Now I want to look 
into Sefer Shemot Perekhaf to the actual Aseret Tzibot. And how do we identify the Ten Commandments in the Aseret Tzibot? And this is truly a formidable challenge. I know that all of you are going to say, of course there are ten. It says it on the parochas of my Bet Knesset, right? Aleph Bet Gimel Dalet Hey, Vav Zayin Chet Ted Yud. But it isn't so easy when we look into the Torah. Now you're going to tell me, first of all, that it's based on the paragraphing. Okay, because if you look at the beginning of Perek Chaf, Vayedaber Elohim, it kol adavrim ele leymor, and leymor basically means in biblical notation, to open quotation marks, leymor, open quotation marks, Anochi Hashem Elokecha, Sheot Zetichem Eret Yisrael, Meitavadim, Lo Yelecha Elohim Acherim Mepanai, Lo Taselecha Pesel. Now you'll notice that this is all in one paragraph. Is it one statement? Is it two statements? Is it three? Now I'll give you a quick uh, piece of classwork to do. How many paragraphs are there in the Aseret Hadibrot? Here. Anybody came out with the right answer? There are actually ten. Okay? There are ten paragraphs. The one which begins with Anochi, number one. Lotisa, number two. Zachor, number four. Zachor, number three. Kavein, number four. Lotisach, Lotinaf, Lotignov, Lotanebreachai, Shaker. And then Lotachmod, number nine. Lotachmod, number ten. Ten paragraphs. Ten statements. What's the problem? They're not our ten commandments. Right? According to this, Anochi and Lo Yelacha is one. And there are two commandments, right, called Lot Achmon. It doesn't quite work. So, did we get the Ten Commandments wrong? What exactly is going on? Now, so maybe you'll say to me, well, it's not based on the paragraphs, right? It's based on something else. Um, maybe it's based on the number of mitzvot. The number of command statements that we have in the Aseret Hadibrot. And here, once again, we're going to see that we're going to hit a brick wall, we're going to hit a problem. I've put for you here on the sheet, um, in source number four, a list from the Sefer HaChinuch of how many mitzvot there are in the Aseret Hadibrot. And as you can see, because I've numbered them, there are at least 15, according to most shitot. What am I referring to? Let's again, let's take a look. Anochi Hashem Elokecha, according to many of the Monea Mitzvot, not according to all of them, is the Mitzvah of Emunah Bashem, the Mitzvah of belief in God. But then look at the next, what we call the second commandment. Lo Yelecha Elohim Achirim Alpanai, don't have any other gods, that's number two. You're not allowed to have any other gods, but also, Lo Taselecha Pesel, you're not allowed to make an idol, otherwise you're not allowed to have another god, but you're also not allowed to create, to fashion, a molten image. And then, let's say I didn't make the idol, right? But I also, but I want to worship them. So in the next line, it says, Right? You shouldn't bow down, even if you didn't make it. And then, Rashi tells us, what happens if the avoda of a particular idol is not through bowing? There's Zorek Eben the Markulis. The God of Mercury, the Traveler's God, where you built up a pile of stones at the beginning of the highway, and other gods, that would also be a different form of service. 
So much so, that the second one of our Dibrot, what we call our second Dibrot, Lotas Salacha, actually contains four different uh, Lavim. Right? As you can see here, Isra Avodazara, Lot Yelachalim Acharim Panai, number one. Lotas Salacha Pesel, do not make an idol, number two. Lot Ishtachavet, do not bow. Okay? And Lot of Daim. In other words, within the first two Dibrot, we already have five Mitzvot. If you keep going, Lotisa gives us another mitzvah, don't take God's name in vain. Zachoret Yom HaShabbat. Here once again, some of you might point to Zachor Vishamor as being two, Zachor as being the Ase, and Shamor being the Lot Ase, or you could put it differently, as it says here, Lot Ase Kol Malacha. That's the way the Sefer Achinuch understands it. Zachor is the mitzvah of Kiddush, the mitzvah of proclaiming Shabbat, and Lot Ase Malacha gives us a second mitzvah. So once again, we've got one Dibor, but two mitzvot. Okay, Kabinet Avicha, let's say one mitzvah. Okay, Lot Tirtaf, Lot Inaf, Lot Ignov, Lot Shacher. And here we get to the end, Lot Achmod, which is said twice. However, if you open to Sefer Dvarim, and the version of the Aserat Dibrot, which is in Sefer Dvarim, in Vayet Khanan. You will see there are different texts, as many things are different there. There it tells us in Devarim Parakei, Pasuk Yudchet, Lo tachmod eshet re'echa, velo titave beit re'echa, sadeu v'avdo v'amoto, shoro v'chamoro v'cholashen re'echa. Two words. Lo tachmod, velo titave. Now this is a huge uh, discussion. What is the difference between tachmod and titave? And we're not really going to have time, time to deal with it in, in detail. They're both verbs which indicate desire, chimud, to covet, titaver, to lust. And indeed, there are certain mafarshim who said this is one and the same thing. In fact, one of the um, interesting proof test, tests here is where it says in Parashat Reshit, we all remember the first act of desire. Chava in Gan Eden, where she saw what it says, Vatera Isha Kitova Itzamachal, the Kitavahi Leinaim, the Nechmada Itzla skill. We have Chemda and Tava used in the same way. The Targum translates them in the same way, and therefore Loti Taver and Lotachmod are synonyms. However, the Mechilta differs. And in fact, the Rambam and the Sefer Chinuch after him say there are two Isurim. Loti Taver is the beginning of desire. Loti Taver means you are not allowed to begin desiring something which belongs to your friend. And Lotachmod is actually when you take steps in order to try and obtain that object by illicit or illicit means. To cut a long story short, we have a situation whereby we have ten statements or ten commandments and we have anything up to 15, or possibly even 16 mitzvot. And I come back to the question, what are the Ten Commandments? Right? In other words, we've seen, there are ten paragraphs, but they're so to speak the wrong paragraphs. Right? The Torah tells us there are ten. But we can't identify them so easily. And if it be going back to mitzvot, the mitzvot don't quite match. So what exactly are we going to do with this? The truth is that our tradition has preserved uh, two traditions which shows that 
there really is a conflict as regards this. And I don't know how many of you in the room are Bale Kore, or married to Bale Kore, uh, but uh, you might be aware, if you're very attentive in shul, that there are two different ways of reading the trope of the Aseret Hadibrot. One is called the Tam El Yon, if you want the higher notation, the higher tune, and the Tam Tachton, the lower tune. Um, there are different traditions about when these are read. In some Ashkenazi communities, the Tam Tachton is read during the year, and the Tam El Yon is read only on Shavuot, as if to imagine sort of a sense of the ceremony. In Sephardi congregations, generally, they always read the Tam El Yon. Um, there are lots of different traditions, and it's not entirely clear where they come from. According to some understandings, uh, the Tam El Yon has its origin in the uh, traditions of Eretz Yisrael, and the Tam Tachton and the Tam El Yon in Babel. But I'll simply point out that even within our tradition, there are two different ways of dividing it up. The Tam El Yon divides up the Aseta Dibrot into what we know as Dibrot. And the best way you'll know this is by, uh, by the laning itself, by the way that uh, we read it. And I'm sure we're all familiar with the, with the tune. Um, but the way it's read is that each statement is read independently. The place where this comes into focus will be in the very, very short uh, Dibrot, like Lotirtsaf, Lotirnaf, Lotignov, where in the Tam El Yon, they'll sing it something like this. They'll sing, Lo Tirzach, pause. Lo Tinaf, Lo Tignov, Lo Tanebrecha, Echaker. Each one is separate. That's Tam El Yon. Tam Tachton reads it as one sentence, because it is one sentence. Right? Lo it reads it like this. Lo Tirzach, Lo Tinaf, Lo Tignov, Lo Tanebrecha, Echaker. Sounds like a sing- single statement, even though it contains four Dibrot. What this is saying is that there was one method, and by the way, for the longer ones like Shabbat or Lotaselacha, there are very convoluted notes. The Pasuk goes on and on and on in the Tamilion, right? Keeps going and without any pause, very unusual, putting three verses together. Whereas in the Tam Tachton, we have a more normal division of the Psukim. This is simply to express the following. That the ten statements are very difficult to identify. Tam El Yon tries to identify ten statements. In the Tam Tachton, we have either twelve or thirteen psukim, depending on whether you're reading from a Koran or whether you're reading from Rav Broyer's Tanakh. Right? There are two different, and we'll come to why there's a difference in the psukim in a minute. Um, but these are the differences, and um, the ten commandments are very elusive. And because it's so difficult to find out exactly what are the ten statements, I am going to now move on to a second question, which will take us into the main body of Ashir. And that is, how did the ten statements fit onto the two tablets? We've already mentioned, we read the Psukim here in Shemot and in Devarim, that the idea was that the... Uh, if you, again, if you look back to source number one and source number two... Or in, in Dvarim Perektal, in Pasit Yudgimel, How did the two, the ten statements get put onto two tablets? Now again, you're going to tell me very simply what your Gananet told you. 
Right? I know. Your kindergarten teacher told you five and five. But this is far from simple on the, on the basic level. First of all, one of the reasons why it is far from simple is that the text itself is incredibly uneven. If you take the first five, Dibrot, it's 146 words. The second five, Dibrot, 26 words. Okay? 146 versus 26. Five times longer. Now again, what does that mean? Right? So I think there are probably two options. One option is that the two Luchot, remember how you saw it in the movies? The two Luchot actually weren't, didn't look like that. There was one sort of big luach with the first five, and then one small luach which had twenty-six words on it. You know, Moshe's got to carry a lot of a lot of rock there. Uh, why waste so much space, right? <laughs> so it could have been that the luchot were uneven. Maybe they weren't the same, right? Who knows, right? Um, I'll raise one other further question, which is: Were they written on two folios, or were they written on four folios, right? If you look in source number three that I put on the sheet, it tells us, They were written on both sides. The writing was somehow godly, carved on the Luchot. In order to avoid the idea that we've got four folios, right? What, what did Chazal say? When it says Charut, it was engraved all the way through. It was chiseled through. It wasn't just uh, written or embossed or whatever it might be, but it was actually chiseled all the way through such that if you lifted up the Luchot, right, you would see the, the sky through, through the, the stone, right? Uh, Rav Meidan even thinks that uh, the source of the Tchelet in the Tzitzis is if you can imagine, if you can imagine luchot which are limestone and white, you lift them up. What do you see? The blue peeking through the white. That's where you get the idea. That's why the blue in the tzitzit is meant to remind you of God. It's the blue peeking through the luchot. Um, that's how Rav Meidan understands the basis of Hashem when you see the tchelat. Right? Very beautiful idea. But did we? Was it written on four folios or two? We're going to go with two. But again, it's so uneven. Right? Um, there's another possibility, which is that the Luchot weren't written evenly on both of the Luchot. The, the, I mean, the Dibrot were not written evenly on the Luchot. Right? I used to daven frequently in a shul in Perach Tikva, the young Israel in Perach Tikva, and they have, on the, on the parochet, they have all of the Aseret HaDibrot embroidered. All the words, not just, uh, you know, Anochi, Lo Yelacha, but all the words. Except that if you go close, you will realize that there's only about three and a half dibrot on the first parochet, and on the second parochet is the other is the other six and a half because of the disparity in the length. Okay, so what exactly is the division into into two? Now, of course, I'll go back to what Avganenet taught us. Avganenet taught us that there are five and five. Why? Why? We all know. Bein Adam lemakam, bein Adam lechavera. Right. So if that's true, let's examine the evidence, right? Anochi Hashem Elokecha is clearly ben adam lemakom. Lo yielecha, also, right? Ben adam lemakom. Don't take God's name in vain. 
Ben Adam Lamakom. Keep Shabbat. Why are we keeping Shabbat? Because God created the world. That sounds good. Ben Adam Lamakom. Honor your father and mother. Does that sound Ben Adam Lamakom or Ben Adam Lachaberon? So, we, we've all been, the problem is we've been through a good Jewish education, right? So we all asked the, all asked the question when we were five, right? And then when we were five and a half, our Ganelet taught us that really, honoring our parents, right, is like honoring God, right? Uh, you can see this, by the way, in, our, in the source I've put here, source number five. Here, the Sefer Chinuch. Mishar Tova. The basis of this mitzvah is that you should, in some way, have hakarat atov. You should appreciate the good that is done. You shouldn't be a disgusting person who is an ingrate. Because this is inappropriate in a divine sense and in a human sense. Since your parents are the reason, the very reason you're here. If this is simple gratitude, it sounds to me like Ben Adam, the I think. They brought you into the world. They did a few things for you. They got up a few times in the night when you were young, right? <laughs> it's a little bit of an understatement, right? When you, when you appreciate the notion of appreciation, of gratitude, you'll begin to appreciate God too. Because that's the reason why we're here and all our ancestors, um, etc., etc. And then you'll come to, as the last line, the Aroch this is the Seva Chinuch solution to try and bring Kabeit et Avicha Betimecha into the realm of Ben Adam Lemakom. Okay, so now, now I'll ask you. It's a good answer. So if I was talking in the world of Londres, I'd say, uh, right? Uh, it's a bit of a tight, it's a bit of a stretch. What are you going to do? It doesn't exactly work so well. Okay, maybe the Ganenet was wrong. Who knows? Um, no, it couldn't be. We'll come back and we'll justify the Ganenet in a few minutes, right? But really, it's possible that if we were just basing ourselves on uh, on the on the, the content, if it was really Ben Adam Lakom against Ben Adam we would not divide it five five. We'd divide it maybe four six. Right? Four in the first luach, six in the second. As I say, it would really help the space, right? The equality. And I'd even say more than that. If you want to take the, the, the dibrot as they appear in Sefer Dvarim, what is the reason for Shabbat in Sefer Dvarim? Because God brought you out into the land of Egypt, out of the land of Egypt, and therefore you should rest and you shouldn't make your slaves work. That's also a social justice reason. If you want to take the version in Sefer Dvarim, you will even come to a situation where maybe you would divide it three seven if you were solely basing it on the content of Ben Adam la Makom, Ben Adam la The ones which are quintessentially God are the first three. The last seven in Dvarim, Ben Adam la So suddenly we're seeing that it's not not so simple. Um, I want to take a step back and maybe suggest a more unorthodox division. Don't worry, it's not really unorthodox. It's mentioned already 
in the Mechilta, in your source number seven, um, I'm sorry, this actually stretches over two pages, but I literally want to just read the first line and the last line of this Mechilta. The first line's on page two and the last line is on page three. Uh, the Mechilta says, How are the Dibrot given? Five on this one and five on that one. See, the Gananet was right. Okay? However, if you look over the page, These are indeed the words of Hanina ben Gamliel. The rabbis say that actually the two tablets contained the two luchot, each the two luchot, each contained ten. Ten commandments were written on each of the luchot. Now what could this possibly mean? This means that essentially Moshe is given the Luchot in duplicate. And that there is no division between the, 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 the Dibrot, the first five, the last five, four, six, three, seven, however you want to divide it up. Ten on this, ten on this. What exactly are we going to make of this idea? And here, um, many scholars of the ancient Near East have pointed out that this is something which is quite familiar from treaties which were made between a more senior king and a more junior king, a, 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 an emperor and his vassal. The most famous example of this is a diplomatic agreement which was made between the Egyptian pharaoh, Ramses II, and uh, the Hittite king, uh, Hattusilis III, it's dated to something like 1270 BCE. And the reason why this is so remarkable is because they found their actual contract that they made. The thing about the contract was they found two copies of it. However, the first copy was found in Egypt, where Ramses is the senior king. And the second one was found in Turkey, in the capital of the Hittites. Two identical copies of the document which expressed the fact that Ramses was the ruler and the Hittite king was his vassal. Now, the amazing thing about it is where these were found. Where did they put their special documents, the documents of uh, vassaldom? They put it in their temple. And here we see something really remarkable. That it could well be that the two luchot actually contain the same document. The same, this is the treaty, the Brits, they keep on being called the covenant. The covenant between Hashem and the people. Hashem is the Adon, we are his servants, and therefore there are two copies. One is God's and one is ours. Where do we put them? We put them in the Aron. The Aron on the one hand is the Mishkan. It is the place of the Shekhinah. It is the place where Hashem rests. It is the place of Hashem. On the other hand, it is the Ohel Mo'ed, the place where we come to meet God. Now again, you could turn around and say, you know, what are you basing this on ancient Near East? However, of course, we all live in a certain milieu, we live in a certain environment, and that's the, the, the styles of government and the styles of the way that the world works have an impact on the way that we practice religion. And here I'd like to just refer to one other observation about the 
um, from the world of the Hittites and others, which I find really remarkable just to underscore this theme. Um, and the person who I've seen who's written about this is uh, a chaver of mine who I study with in Yeshiva, who's now a lecturer at Bar Ilan, Rabbi Dr. Joshua Berman. And uh, he writes in his book, Created Equal, an amazing observation. Um, in one of the Hittites treaties, um, there is a subordinate king and there is a senior king. And the subordinate king, a vassal, is mandated to appear at regular intervals before the senior king, before the controlling king. Um, the treaty reads like this. The king, the, the junior king, whose name is Sanushara. And it says, Sanushara must come before his majesty and look upon the face of his majesty. In other words, every, maybe multiple times a year or at least once a year, the junior king came before the senior king and the phrase is that he has to look upon his face. By the way, what he generally brought with him was the, 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 the tribute, the tax money, which he had to give for the previous period which he owed the senior king. Why am I mentioning this? Because immediately after the Aserita Dibrot, in Parashat Mishpatim, we see a description of the Chagim. And there it says the following. Um, I'm reading from Parak Chav Gimel and Shemot. It says here, Shalosh Pamim Bashana Yira'eh Kol Zechurcha Et Pnei HaAdon Hashem. Three times a year, all your menfolk will appear El Pnei HaAdon Hashem. Okay? Um, earlier in Pasuk Tetvav there, it says, Velo Yira'u Panai Rekam. You shall not see my face empty-handed. In other words, the menfolk of Am Yisrael, the representatives of each family, um, are being asked to appear before the face of the senior king. The language is so evocative. What we're saying is Hashem is our Adon, Hashem is controlling, and we are his vassal. And what do we do? We come along to see his face, or our faces must see his face, and we come along, don't come empty-handed. What we're saying is that the Torah is expressing Aliyah Leregel as a meeting between somebody who is subservient and a controlling king. By the way, the, the Chiddush here, I have to say, and this is what Rabbi Dr. Joshua Berman says, is that in every other kingdom, what would happen? The king would appear instead of in front of the king. What happens in Am Yisrael? Every kol every family is a king. There is a democratic notion that there is no our king can't worship God for us. Every single family must worship God. Every individual must worship God. Right? Sorry here about the male-oriented text. We're not going to get into that for today. But the point should be taken that. What we have here is an indication that there is a personal obligation. And to really understand this phrase, phrase if we understand it on the Near Eastern backdrop, we appreciate it more. I'm saying that not only features like but also this idea of a contract being written in duplicate, one being responsible, one being held by God, so to speak, and I think some of you might remember the Midrashim, which talk about the Luchot, so to speak, as being 
two Tfachim is held by God, two Tfachim by Moshe, and two Tfachim between, really has this idea of it being a Brit, which is, maybe we should be saying, one Luach held by God, one Luach held by Moshe, but rather the idea that these two Luchot, God's copy and our copy are both put in the Aron. The Aron is God's place, it is our place. We carry the Aron, but the Shechina talks from the Aron. And this is a sign of, this is why it's called, by the way, Luchot Ha'edut, right? It is a testimony to what? It is testimony to the covenant. And if we breach the covenant, what do we do with the covenant? We smash it, right? You break it. You tear out the ksuba. You break it. So this is the idea that the luchot, according to what I'm saying, I solved all the problems with any divisions in the luchot. There are no divisions. There are two luchot. Both contain all the Ten Commandments. One is God's copy. One is our copy. And... Uh, this explains everything very, very perfectly. But I told you, there is another opinion, right? Not only the opinion of Ganenet, but the opinion of, as we saw in the sheet, um, of Rabbi Hanina, Rabbi Hanina ben Gamliel, um, which is five and five. And uh, it's about time, if we've already mentioned the division of ten and ten, three and seven, four and six, we better get and explain the division that we find on every single parochet or Aron Kodesh in all of our shuls and understand where it comes from. And the answer really is very, very simple. But I, I don't know if it, how many of you have necessarily noticed it. It is textual and structural. And let me try and explain. <laughs> if you're looking at the Aserat brought in Shemot Perekhaf, you will notice, of course, that there is a completely different literary structure to the first five luchot, the first five dibrot, as opposed to the second five. All the first five, and here maybe is the basis of when we start saying ben ben all the first five mention God's name. Take a look. Anochi Hashem Elokecha. There it is, right? Not only that, look at... Uh, for example, the second Dibra, Lo Yelecha, look in Pasuk Hei, Ki Anochi Hashem Elokecha. Pasuk Zayin, Lo Tisa Et Shem Hashem Elokecha Vashav. In the fourth Shabbat, Zachor Yom HaShabbat Lekadsho, Pasuk Yun, V'yom Hashvi'i Shabbat Lashem Elokecha. And again, in Kabeid, Pasuk Yudbet, Kabeid et Avicha vetimecha, Lamanu Rukhimecha, Ladama, Asher, Hashem Elokecha, Noten Lach. In the first five he brought, Hashem Elokecha appears in every single one. Look at the last five. The name of God does not appear. So a very simple literary difference. But there's a second literary difference. Each one of the first five contain some sort of rationale or some sort of explanation. Or I'd say, each one of the first five gives a sort of double-barreled um, understanding or double-barreled commands. And let me explain. You'll find the key words being things like asher, ki, lema'an. Again, let me read it through. It's so obvious, and we know this text so well, you sort of say, how did I think about this already? But take a look. Anochi Hashem Elokecha, there's the command. Right? Anochi Hashem Elokecha. Why? I took you out of slavery, so now I'm your God, right? And you've got that word, Asher, which justifies, qualifies, or explains, Here's another one. Second. 
לא יהיה לך אלוהים אחרים בפניי, לא תעשה לך פסל וכולי וכולי. לא תשתחווה להם ולא תעובדיהם עם פסוק ה', כי, right, before we had a share, כי, כי, אנוכי השם אלוקיך אל קנה, you don't want to do this, because I am a zealous God, there will be comeuppance. Look at the third one. לא תישא את שם השם אלוקיך לשווא, כי לא ינקה השם אל אשר ישא את שמו So this is more to do with punishment, but it explains it. Likewise, in Shabbat, we have the command clause, זכורי יום השבת לקדשו, ששת ימים תעבוד ועשית כל מלאכתך, ויום השיש שבת לא תעשה מלאכה. Why? כי ששת ימים עשה השם את השמיים ואת הארץ. So we have, not only להשם אלוקיך, but again, כי. So we had a share in the first one, כי in the second, third, and fourth, and now, כבלת אביך ותימך, once again this is related to reward and punishment, למען יאריכון ימיך על האדמה אשר השם אלוקיך. Here it's Lama'an in order. So what I'm saying is that you, each time you have a command clause with some sort of uh, explanation, either some sort of consequences, reward, justification, explanation, right? Whereas look at the second, they're just express statements, right? Without any reasons, right? It just is. And therefore, what I'm saying is that the division into five and five, which we're so familiar with, um, is simply based on a, it can be based most simply, and I think most obviously, without even going into Ben Adam and Makomer Adal Chavero, even though we are going to come back to that, um, on a literary division, on a literary explanation, on the most basic form. The first five are very different. Now, by the way, you could actually have imagined that it might be completely reversed. <laughs> we could give, it, it's difficult to give rational reasons for God. But we could all give reasons why you shouldn't kill, right? Why you shouldn't commit adultery. In fact, there are psukim all around the Torah which says, you know, say the Mishnah talks about you shouldn't commit adultery because this, that, and the other. Okay? It's very interesting that the social laws, which we could all come up with explanations, God just says, they're wrong, don't do them. The godly laws, each of them are given some sort of rationale. But maybe more, more deeply I'll say the first five have the phrase, Hashem Elokecha, the second five do not. And here I'd like to spend the next few minutes talking a little bit about this 5-5 division. We're going to be doing it with the use of Midrash, but I'd like to make a couple of statements before we reach the Midrash. The first uh, relates to a connection uh, between these, um, and, and an interflow of ideas between thought and action. Uh, I, I regularly teach 18-year-olds, uh, and one of the things which always bothers them, a big question which always bothers them, is how can you prove belief in God? Now, this is something the Mepharshim thought about as well. Is Anochi Hashem Lokecha Mitzvah? Because, of course, if you don't believe in God, it doesn't really hold much water, right? I don't, if you don't believe in God, then it can't really be a command. You, once, you have a, once you believe in God, then you can, it can be a command or not. But Anochi is a mitzvah which is given over to the realm of thought, belief, our inner, our inner emotional world. Interestingly enough, the last dibra, Lotachmod, is also. Um, can a person control their inner thoughts? What happens if I, I like the Ferrari of my neighbor? I think it's really great and I really want it. I, I just wake up every morning and I see that beautiful red Ferrari and I say, you know, I want that. You know, it's difficult to control. I, I didn't ask for it, it just popped into my head, you know. Lotachmon. 
Now, by the way, of course, there are Mepharshim um, who say, no, it is all within our control. There is a very, very beautiful Ibn Ezra, where the Ibn Ezra says, you know, can a person really control what they're thinking of? Can a person really control? Here it talks about Beit Reicha, Eishet Reicha, Reicha. Can we control our greed? Can we control our sexual passions? And the Ibn Ezra says, yes, you can. He says it's fully in your control. And he gives a lovely mashal. He says, imagine that there is uh, some sort of uh, farm yokel, some sort of uh, a peasant's child, peasant boy. And uh, one day he's uh, walking along through one of the uh, country lanes and he sees the um, beautiful wagon or the chariot, whatever it might be, the state coach of a princess driving by. And the princess is in her beautiful royal clothes with her tiara and he sees her and says wow, she's beautiful. He says there would be no real sense of chimud right, there would be no real sense of desire a desire which would really mean that he had any sort of aspirations to marry this princess, that only happens in the fairy tales Um, why? because he knows he's in a total different social class there's no way he's getting anywhere near her he's never going to have a conversation with her it might be an infatuation, but it's nothing more than that. He'll put it out of his mind in a second. He also gives another example, which is the example of, of incest. He says a person doesn't uh, desire uh, sexually their sister, their relatives. Why? Because we've been taught by social means that this is out of bounds. He says if in, in your mind something is enough out of bounds, it's simply, there's no way you won't even come to desire it. Okay? I think, by the way, that's hopefully true with a lot of us, with, uh, you know, you work in an office, you wouldn't think of, I don't know, pilfering something from the office. Why? It belongs to the office, it doesn't belong to me. We don't, we don't even have the temptation. It's out of bounds, it's out, you know, it's not relevant, right? In other words, a person train their minds that certain things are in bounds or out of bounds and all this. But having said that, it's fascinating that the first in each five, the first of the, of, of the first five and the last of the, the second five are committed to the idea of thought. And here I want to share with you a very beautiful comment. You'll find it in source number six by Rosh Falhash. Rosh Falhash says the following. The demand for the recognition of God begins with the demand for the mind, the command of belief. But it is not satisfied with this spirit. It demands the expression of the spirit in letter, in control of the words, for example, taking God's name in vain, of activities and of the family. This is the Ben Adam Lamarco on the first five. They begin with thought, they move into action. The social laws begin the demand for letter, for control of deeds and words, murder, adultery, stealing and false witness, but are not satisfied with letter only. But demand, but they, they reach a desire, a, a a, a need for, dem- for control of spirit and feeling. This expresses the important idea. All religion, also called honoring God in spirit, and here I think he is uh, polemicizing with Christianity here, is worthless if the thought, the idea of God is not strong enough to exercise its power practically in the control of our words and doings of our family and social life. Our deeds, our way of life must first prove that our religion, our honoring of God, is genuine. Otherwise, it's not enough just to love God in your heart. It has to be expressed in action. 
And on the other hand, all social virtue is worthless and crumbles at the first test. As long as it aims at letter, at outward correctness, is satisfied with being considered righteous and honest in the eyes of a fellow man, but refuses inner loyalty, does not depend on the pure inner conscience that only God sees and God judges, and which has its roots and nourishment only in quiet but constant looking at God. All spirits must be developed into letter, into act. All letter, all acts, must have their source in spirit. This is the inspiration that hovers over these fundamental ideas of God's Torah and fuses the two tablets, the religious and the social, into one inseparable whole. I think it's a very powerful idea, this relationship between action and thought. But the Midrash is going to go even a stage further. In other words, what we've said is, indeed, five and five, however, Rav Hirsch is creating this interesting journey from belief to action in the first half, from action to belief in the second half. The Midrash goes even further, and I'd like to share a few ideas of the Midrash um, and to see the way it's developed. Because the Midrash does something remarkable. It doesn't only want to read the first five as a unit and the second five as a unit, but it actually wants to say there are parallels. Anochi is going to be parallel to Lotirzah. Lo Yelacha is going to be parallel to, parallel to Lotinaf. In other words, one is parallel to six, two is parallel to seven, three is parallel to eight, etc., etc. You with me? Okay, let's see how the Midrash does it. And it creates remarkable connections. Let's read the Midrash, it's in source number seven. It says the following. It says, I am the Lord your God. And opposite it, literally if you put the two luchot next to, and therefore the Torah is telling us, But when you take life, you're not taking a human life, you're t- chipping away a bit at, we're all B'Tselem Elohim, and therefore we're chipping away at God. Mashallah Melech Batsabadam, imagine a human king, Shenichlas Lundinav, Emidlo Okinot, Vasalot Slamim, the Tavolo Matbeot. He's talking about what kings do, did in those times. You made statues, you printed your image on coins. Lahazman, Kafula Okinot, Shabrulot Slamim, Vitlumat Beotav. At a certain point, and this is what happened in rebellions, right? What did they do? They knocked down his statues. They broke his coins as if to say he is not the king. And what did they do? They tried to get rid of the image of the king. In other words, what we're saying here is that when we're talking about um, the mitzvah of it goes to the heart. You think you're killing another person, but really, you're killing God. And that's the amazing parallel the Lord Tzitzah has with Anochim. How about the next? You must not have any other gods. It's parallel to adultery. This is interesting. Let's see. If you take another god, it is as if you are committing adultery. Um, this is again a remarkable statement 
But I want to maybe help us understand what a deep statement it is. Uh, we are familiar with the idea of zanut, promiscuity, being used. Uh, we, we have it, Asher Atem Zonim right? In the Shema, the idea that sometimes waywardness or not keeping the mitzvah is compared to promiscuity. But I want you to understand how deep this is, and I'm going to refer to Sukim um, later on, because of course, what we, the greatest sin that we do immediately after Aseret brought is the Egel. Uh, Chazal actually referred to it as uh, in a, a sort of a metaphor of marriage, of a human ma- male-female relationship. They talk about the Matan Torah as a wedding, right? Kafa Lehem Harkigigit, Har Sinai itself is the Chuppah. And when the Egel happens, they talk about Kalash, a very, very sort of, I don't know, crude metaphor. But Kalash is in Tatachachupata, a, a, a bride who has an affair under her chuppah, literally. This doesn't come from nowhere. And uh, when Moshe is rebuking the people, uh, when he's talking to, to the people immediately after the Egel, he makes a very, very strange phrase. He uses a very strange phrase. You'll find it in Peret Lamed Bet, Pasuk uh, Lamed. Moshe turns around to the people and says, Atem chatatem chata'a gdola. You have done a great sin. Now, this is an interesting phrase. You, you have been very, very, very mischievous. Right? Is that what he's saying? So, uh, Professor Nachum Sarna points out that this phrase, is not a phrase which is not to be understood without its Near Eastern context. Back to the Near Eastern context again. But we can actually find this within the Torah itself. If you all recall, um, sorry, one second. The if if we re- here we go. If you recall the story when uh, Abraham goes down to Gerar and Sarah is taken by Avimelech. You remember the story? Avimelech takes Sarah. And uh, suddenly in the, in the night, Hashem appears to him and he says, you know, she's uh, Avram's wife. And in the morning, Avimelech confronts Avram. And he says, It's in Bereshit Perak What have you done to us? You have brought upon me and my kingdom a great sin. What would the great sin be if this woman is indeed married? The sin of adultery. By the way, not in exactly the same phraseology, but remember Yosef with Potiphar's wife? Okay? What does he say to her? I can't do this. In other words, in the ancient world, if you spoke about the great sin, what was the great sin? Adultery. You may not take another man's wife. I want you to understand how important this is with the ego. You see, if you've grown up in a polytheistic society, in the world of polytheism, you can have lots of gods. You hear about another god, you know, there's a huge pantheon. The only question is at what level you are, how high you are in the pantheon. Lots and lots of gods. What, another god? Come on board, right? The only question is, 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 is who's in control of who and who wars with who, right? But there are multiple, there's no problem with lots of gods. So in the world of religion, you can imagine growing up in the land of Egypt, 
Am Yisrael would have said, what's the problem with having another god? What's the problem with making an Egel? It's not a big deal. You know, I still believe that Hashem is the top of the pantheon, but there's another god, right? What does Hashem say? When you do the Egel, what are you doing? Chata'agdola. You are not just doing idolatry, which you think, I can have lots of gods. It is like adultery. Like you, and again, the male-oriented uh, uh, perspective here. But, like the men would expect their wife to have fidelity to them, so I am God, and I expect you to have fidelity to me. That means there is only a single exclusive relationship. There can't be any gods on the side. This is monotheism. Idolatry equals adultery. Even in English, they sound the same, right? In other words... Is the same as Lot enough. You got it? Lot enough explains. One goes to explain the other. In other words, there's an interplay between one and six, two and seven. Okay? I'll quickly run through the others. We're not going to have time to deal with all of them in detail because we want to get on to another division. But I'll simply. Uh, run through the the next Loti Shem Hashem Elokecha is with Loti Gnov back in source number seven, right? Because we have uh, he says anybody who steals will end up taking false oaths. Here you can see maybe it's not so deep as the first two or Yom Shabbat. Very interesting. Yom Shabbat is parallel to Lot Aner Bereacha Eit Right? If you don't keep Shabbat, what are you doing? You are not witnessing God. That's quite a powerful one, right? The last one, I find a little more difficult, right? <laughs> on your parents is parallel to Lotachmon. What's the connection according to the Midrash? If you are somebody who is Chomed, and I think here is probably talking about Chomed Eishet Reyacha, if you don't have respect to your marriage and instead you take another man's wife, your children won't have respect for you. I think that's sort of probably what it's trying to say. You'll have a child who will be mekalelet aviv etimo or mechabed lemishin aviv, etc., etc. Let's say, this one maybe, it's an interesting scenario, but it's a little weaker. A little weaker. <laughs> and if I want to just to maybe pay attention and maybe just try and explain Kabeid in a little more detail, and then we'll spend our last ten minutes looking at one last division. Um, I want to go back to this problem of Kabeid, really. What is Kabeid doing at the end of the Ben Adam Lamakom section? It really does seem a Ben Adam, a Chaveiro mitzvah, and not a Ben Adam Lamakom mitzvah. Already we saw it in the Sefer Chinuch, and the Ramban says it even further. That of course there is definitely a sort of, uh, how should I say it, a mirroring between parents and God. Uh, what do I mean? Um, the idea that, as the Ramban, for example, he says that um, the uh, your father is like a bore, is like a creator, just like God is a creator. And he goes further and says that when a person admits who their father is and respects him, they will understand respect for God as well, right? Or I'd say it maybe differently. If a person disrespects their father, right? and respects another man instead of their father, right, it'll be difficult for them to have an understanding of God as your creator, and all of that. But, 
want to try and get into this Kabbalah Tavicha Betimecha and understand how it might somehow relate to Ben Adam the Makom. I'm going to give a few, uh, two, two, words of intro- two words of introduction. What exactly is the mitzvah of Kibbut of Va'im? So we're all familiar with the Gemara in Kedushin which says that Kibbut of Va'im what is kibud? Is to feed and to give drink, to dress, to cover, to take in and take out. And this image of kabeda tavicha imecha might be very suitable for uh, parents who are infirm, who are sometimes at the end of their life in a very difficult situation. And in that situation, you have to be ma'achilu, ma'shkem, ma'obishu, ma'chaseh, ma'chnisu, motzi. If you want to imagine an image of that, maybe you'll think about Esav and Yaakov with Yitzchak Avinu, when Yitzchak's old. And uh, what do they need to do? They need to attend to his needs. But let's face it, the majority of our life, that is not kabir et avicha v'et imecha. How does kabir et avicha v'et imecha apply for the majority of one's life? And what we might say that with a young parent, um, the focus of Kabbalah Tavicha is this. Why does a child have to honor a parent? A child has to honor a parent because the parent has what to give to the kids. What do they have to give to the kids? And uh, I want to express this um, by, if you can turn to Devarim Parak Dalad, we'll see it very clearly. Tvarim Perak Dalad Pasuk Tet, referring to the Aseret Hadibrot and Ma'amad Harsinai, tells us exactly what this is all about. It tells us, Raki Shamer Lacha, Ushmor Nashchamaot, Pentishkachet Hadvarim Ashebro Oenecha. Be very careful not to forget the things that you've seen, Penyasurumu Vachokonim Echayecha, unless you remove them from your heart, from your heart. V'hoda'atam levanecha u'livnei vanecha. Teaching to your children what? Yom Hashem ratzah livnei Hashem alohecha b'chorev. The day you stood at Chorev. Be'amor Hashem alai ha'kel et ha'am v'ashmiyem et evarai Hashem u'madun. Li'yurati kol ha'emim Hashem chayim ala adama ve'bneihem yela meidun. In other words, teach your children all the days they are chayim ala adama. By the way, notice how similar that sounds. Kabeid yetavicha ve'temecha l'aman yoreichun yomecha ala adama. Okay? This is Chayecha Barechamecha. How are you going to make sure that the Ben Adam Lamakam, that the notion of God is kept? Because if you have Kabele Tavicha, you will be able to teach your children. The same thing, by the way. It's very interesting. If you just turn, you're in Devarim Perak Dalad. Um, if you turn over the page, right, you will see the idea that you have the Ten Commandments. And of course, we know that the Ten Commandments are called the Aseret Hadvarim. Okay? And uh, if you look in Perak Vav, here's the Shema. Which Dvarim? Could it be Shema's chapter 6? The Dvarim are the Aseret Hadvarim. But what do you have to do? In other words, why do we need Because the responsibility of parents is that they have something valuable to give. But if there's no respect from children to parents, they're not going to be even interested in hearing what they have to say. I'll give you one classic example of this. And unfortunately I plan to read it with you, 
But uh, I don't think we're going to have the time. But uh, if you remember a famous story, the story of Eli and his sons. Eli and his sons, I'm sure everybody's familiar with this story from the story of Shmuel. Eli is the Kohen Gadol, his sons are in the Bet Mikdash, and his sons are running a racket, a sort of, in the, in the Bet Mikdash. Uh, all sorts of atrocities are going on there, and they're not respecting uh, God and the laws of the Mikdash. And the fascinating thing that happens there is that Eli tries to rebuke his sons. Okay? And what does he say? And he turns around to his kids and berates them and says, Don't do it. Right? And he gives them a whole Musa drasha. And what happens? It says, They didn't listen to their father. What does the Navi come and rebuke him and says? The he comes to warn Eli, and he tells him, "What's the problem with you?" He says, et You're soft on your kids. You respect your kids more than me. If you really respected me, you would put your children in order. When you don't, when you respect your kids more than me, suddenly the tradition cannot be passed down. And of course, what is the punishment for Bnei Eli? Right? What does it say? The answer here, The opposite of There will never be anybody who is old. In other words, why does Kabein Etavicha sit at the beginning of the, um, the sit in the Ben Adon Lamachim section? Let's divide up. The Ben Adam Nachum section, we started with Anochi and Lo Yelacha, which deal with God. Lo Tisat, Shema Shema Lokechalashav, and Shabbat, which are testimony to God, in the way we testify to God. But once we accept that God exists, and once we accept we have to have God on our lips, on our lips, and in our week, how do we pass it on? Kabed et Avicha, et Imecha. Okay, if you honor your parents, your parents will be able to pass on the tradition. And indeed, the evidence of God will be passed forth from generation to generation. And that is why Kabelet Avicha ends off the first half of the, um, of the Aserat divorce. We have seven minutes left and I want to deal with one final division, a famous division. And that is the division, we've already spoken if you want, about the 10-10 division. The 3-7, the 4-6 division, the 5-5 division. I hope everybody's following all these numbers. And I want to finish off by talking about the division of the Asaitsa Debrot. I haven't really left myself enough time. But into 2 and 8. What do I mean by 2 and 8? If you look at the 10, at the ten Commandments, you will, there's one textual um, marker which we haven't spoken about at all. And that is the division from first person to third person. Because of course, the first two commandments are said in the first person. Anochi Hashem Elokecha, I am the Lord your God. Right? Lo lecha Elohim acherim al panai. Who's talking? God. God is talking. Right? And it continues if we go through um, where it says, Notice, by the way, it begins with Anochi and ends with Anochi. Right? Anochi Hashem Elokecha. 
God's talking. Now look at the third. Right? Why does it say at Shemi? Suddenly we move into the third person. The same thing with Shabbat, right? Not Shabbat Vishmi or Li or something like that, right? Um, not Asher Ani Noten, right? Asher Hashem Alokecha Noten Lach. What is this division? That the first two sound like God is speaking, and the last eight sound like God is not, like God is not speaking. Of course, this goes back to a very famous statement of Chazal. You can find it on your sheet on the third page. That Hashem only spoke the first two. You can find it in the Gemara in Makot, source number nine. Acute Gematria. Amarav Hamnuna, Maikra, Torah Tzivalanu Moshe, Morasha. Torah be Gematria Shitmea be Chadis Rehaba. The Gematria of Torah is 611. <laughs> 611, right, is the Gematria of the word Torah, right? In other words, Torah Tzivalanu Moshe, 611 mitzvot Moshe taught us, right? However, Anochim, Velo Yelacha, Sorry. They only heard from God, Anochi and Lo Yelacha. What happens? Right? So we're familiar with the fact that when Ben Israel see all the thunder and lightning and hear Hashem talking to them, what do they do? They run away. Now here there's a big argument about when they ran away. According to one of the Mafarshim, they ran away even before God had a chance to say anything. According to one of the other Mepharshim, they run away after they've heard the Ten Commandments and before Parshat Mishpatim. According to Rashi, when do they run away? Between the second and the, uh, and the last eight. They hear the first two, and off they go. And who has to give them the final eight commandments? Moshe Rabbeinu, Anochi v'lo They heard, just Anochi v'lo from God, and nothing else. Um, this is really quite fascinating. Um, and uh, what, what, what exactly, exactly is this uh, saying? We've just divided up the Dibrot between Ben Adon Lamaka and Ben Adon Chavero. But actually, if you think about it, what we're saying is that what they heard was the essence of belief they heard from God. Everything else had to be explicated by Moshe. Moravachim goes even a stage further and says, really, were Ben Israel on a level to understand revelation? Were they really at a level where they could understand revelation fully? Of course they weren't. What did Ben Israel hear? They heard such an overwhelming experience, but they actually could not make out any of the words. What happened later? Where did they actually hear the words? When Moshe came and repeated it to them. But what did they get from the experience? They got the, from the experience They got from the experience that there is a God and there can't possibly be any other God. Not because they even heard the words but rather because they understood it from the depth of the experience. The depth of the experience that they had helped explain this idea. I'd like to finish off with one last idea 
to do with this 2-8 division. And I'd actually like to make a, a strange um, difference between two, two sides of these Dibrots. And maybe give you a little surprise in understanding the division of the Aseret HaDibrot. If any of you have the Broya Tanakh, the Masada Rav Kuk Tanakh, um, you'll see an unusual division, and this also appears in some old Tanakhim, in the Tamat Achdom. And this is why there is a difference in Pesukim between the Koran and the Masada Rav Kuk or the Torah Chaim. Our boy on the base of all ancient manuscripts reads the Pesukim like this. Pasuk number one, Anochi Hashem Elokecha Hashem Tzitich HaMeretz Yisraelim Mivet Avadim Lo Yelecha Elohim Acherim Al Panai and those of you again who are Balei Korea will know that there are some versions of the Tan Tachton which read it this way. Second verse, In other words, you always thought it was Anochi and Lo Yelecha. There is one version, and we find this in ancient Midrashim, which says that the first Dibor is, I am the Lord your God, you may not have any other gods other than me. What's the second Dibor? Don't make any idols, don't bow down to them. And I want to make a distinction between these two ideas. It could well be that we've been misunderstanding the first two Dibrots, and let me explain. There could be two motives for idolatry. Motive number one might be what we might call Elohim Achirim. I don't believe, Chas Shalom, that God is the ultimate deity. I believe that Ra, or whatever it might be, is the other deity, and therefore God is not the supreme uh, God. And God says, Anochi Hashem Elokecha, by the way, not Ani Hashem Elokecha, but Anochi, which is much stronger than that. If you remember, when Esav comes in, he says, Anochi Esav Bechorecha, when you want to emphasize your presence, you don't just say Ani, you say Anochi. The first Tibur is, Anochi Hashem Elokecha, Lo Yeh Lecha Elohim Acherim Alpanai. By the way, if you read it this way, you have no problem with, is there a mitzvah of belief? The mitzvah is, this is God and no other. What's the second Dibur according to this? If you read the line which immediately follows, the Aserita Dibrot, this is what happens, Maftir of Yitro, Pasuk Yutet, Vayom HaMashom HaRosheh, Kotomar Abne Yisrael, Atem Reitem Kimin HaShamayin Dibarti Emachem, you saw that I spoke to you from the heavens. Do not make any gold or silver gods. Ibn Ezra says, what does this mean? We've already been told we're not allowed to have any idols. He says, no. Because the powerful experience of Harsinai is such that we might want to replicate the experience with something we can take home. Like when we have any powerful experience. We have a wedding. We want to see the pictures. We have a... Uh, we have a, a, a wonderful vacation. We want to bring home a souvenir. We have Har Sinai. We want to make Elohei Chesed, Elohei Zahav. When the Torah says, It's saying, don't have any other gods. But when he says, in the second commandment, What's he saying? Don't make an image of what? Of me. Even an image of God is forbidden. This is an amazing explanation of the first two explanations. It's saying the first one is ruling out Elohim Echerim, other gods. But the second is actually ruling what we might call illicit worship of God. The Aserit Dibrod is telling us that there may not be any shortcuts to God. 
We might find the experience of God so incredible, but even to represent God, we must not create images, we must not try and create shortcuts which lead to his worship, because the only thing is HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So we've seen all the different divisions. I hope that we've taken a text we all know and seen it in a more enlightening way. Thank you very much and have a wonderful day.